Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look into this passage, just one verse here, Lord, but it's rich, it's deep with meaning, Father, and so speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, Lord, give us great clarification, understanding, and Lord, not just understanding, but that you would give us something tonight that we can walk away with, something that we can use in our everyday life with you, and we pray it all in the matchless name of Messiah Jesus, and everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at Ephesians 6. 16, just one little verse, all right? Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, at first I want to tell you a funny story, and then I want to tell you all the not-so-funny story stuff. Does everyone like funny stories? Does everyone kind of know what a Freudian slip is? It's where you kind of sometimes reverse words, and it's not funny for anyone except for everyone in the audience but you. A good friend of mine who pastors the Calvary Chapel in Massachusetts, when getting to this passage, switched out the words and said, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench the fiery darts. And instead of fiery darts, he said the diary farts of Satan. Now, I don't know what kind of farts Satan might have, but I could imagine they could be diary and terrible and really brutal. He was unable to get his congregation back. You guys actually stuck with me there. But it's amazing because right here in our passage, there's two tiny Greek words. And it's translated by two tiny English words. Verse 16 starts with the two words, above all. Now, it's only the King James and the New King James that actually translates it this way. Other English translations use more words. But I like that they stuck right to the original text. Very simple, above all. There are three possible interpretations about what this could mean. Now, I have my own leading, but I'll share all three with you just so you know all of them. Number one, it could be possible that Paul is saying the shield is the best. It's above all the rest. But I don't think that is what Paul is saying. Uh, It could mean that the shield was to be used against everything. You know, above all, the shield will shield you from everything. But I don't think that's what Paul meant either. I think what it means is that the shield is to cover the whole armor that the soldier is wearing. Now, remember the biblical idiom here. Paul is imprisoned. This is his first set of imprisonments. He is chained to two Roman soldiers. And when you go through all of Ephesians 6 and you see all the things that Paul is making reference to, the sword of the Spirit, the sandals shod with the gospel, all these different things, the helmet of salvation, and the shield of faith, it is all a reference to every single piece of armor that the Roman soldier of Paul's day would have been wearing. Now, I think that that's just brilliant, that while Paul is there under house arrest, chained up to two Roman soldiers, he takes a great idiom out of the armor that the Roman soldier would be wearing, and he uses it for the benefit of everyone who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you take it this third way, which I believe is the best way to take it, actually, it means that this shield is the armor that you use to protect your armor. Think about it. Breastplate, righteousness, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, sandals, all these different things, and then what do you have? You have the shield. How important is faith 
for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important, isn't it? Matter of fact, Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God, for those who would come to him would believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith is important, and we're going to talk about it tonight. Now, this is the thing you need to understand about a Roman shield, because this is the kind of shield that Paul is making reference to. The typical Roman shield of Paul's day would have measured two and a half feet wide, all right? That's as wide as this lectern. Two and a half feet wide by four and a half feet high. Now, that is just about a big enough shield to completely cover Emily Fernandez. She could totally, because she's so cute and she's so petite, that she could grab a Roman, you know, shield that would just cover all of her. She wouldn't even need the helmet, and she doesn't need anything else. She'd just die behind that sucker, and she'd be cool. To mention something further about the Roman shield, it was curved on the sides and had joints and hooks on both sides, which we'll get together about speaking about a little bit later, but... This is the really cool thing about a Roman shield. It was constructed of laminate wood, which means it was two inches thick. Two different pieces of wood pressed together, glued together, and then it was held together using iron rivets. You see, this Roman shield was unlike a lot of other shields. It was also covered in linen and cowhide. Interesting, right? A lot of different armies out there had bronze shields, and they had iron shields, and they had all these different things. But not the Romans. Not the Romans. They covered theirs with linen and cowhide. Now, you see, I think all too often, we Christians don't use our armor very effectively at all. Oh, it's there. We own it. Maybe it's in the closet. But we need to put on, as Paul would say, all the armor of God. You don't want to think, the Roman soldier would not want to lose anything. He wouldn't want to be without anything on the battlefield. You want a helmet, it protects your head. Don't lose your head. You lose the fight if you lose your head. You want your sandals on so you can be mobile and agile and stay in the fight. You want, a, you want your sword because it is a striking weapon. And the amazing thing about the Roman sword, it was a Roman sword sword, which means that it was only about 18 or 19 inches long. That's not a long sword. And it was double-edged, which means it had a sharp side on this side and a sharp side on this side. And the amazing thing about the Roman short sword is that it basically won the army against the Greek army. That's how the Romans actually conquered the Greeks. And the thing is, when you're using a sword that is double-edged, now check it out. If I miss you on the uptake, I can get you on a downstroke. Because it's not a blade with one sharp edge. You can use it in any rich direction. It was a hacking weapon, totally and absolutely brutal and useful, and it won a war. But brothers and sisters, you do not want to be without your best defensive piece of armor, and that's your shield. Without a shield on the battlefield, one arrow is all it would take And again, Paul is basing this description on the armor that these men were physically wearing. Defensive weaponry, but it could also be used offensively. 
It was defensive when used by the individual, but when used by a group, it became an offensive weapon. As Roman soldiers were trained to fight together, there was not a lot of individualistic thinking amongst Roman soldiers. They learned how to fight together. And brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus our Lord, we can learn something from that. And the fact of the matter is there is strength in numbers. Andy Dean taught on community last week, did he not? We should be unified. Our common blood and our common brother is Christ, who unites all of us. No matter what our socio-political backgrounds are, or our ethnicities, or any of those different things, that the truth of the matter and the beauty of the gospel is that we are all one in the Lord Jesus. I often think back to the garden after Cain slayed his brother, And the Lord came to him and said, where is your brother Abel? And what was the snide remark of snooty Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? What's the right answer? Yes. The right answer is you are your brother's keeper. Brothers and sisters, we are each other's keepers in Christ. That doesn't mean with a heavy hand we lay a smack down on each other. It means that as good soldiers, we all realize we are not in a playground, we're in a battleground, and we look out for one another. Amen? That's what it means. You see, the Roman shield was constructed to take the blow of not only an enemy's sword, but it was also useful at catching, check this out, flaming arrows. Paul said that it's Satan who shoots at us what? Fiery darts. You see, it's not like imaginative Hollywood that has all these different things with, you know, flaming arrows and you're watching a show like, I don't know what, name something. Gladiator or any of the other, you know, movies that only guys could possibly ever really like and girls put up with because they like us. Those movies. That's okay. We watch your movies too. The Notebook and whatever it is, it is. And if you haven't gotten used to that, little brothers, oh, you will. You will watch many chick flicks in your day. Secretly, you'll learn to like them, and you don't want to ever let that out amongst your other friends. Y'all just keep that inside, okay? You can watch it when she's not home. Ooh, I like that movie. It's it's positive and uplifting, okay? But don't let it out. Keep it all on the inside. You keep it on the inside. It's not just a Hollywood prop. What enemy, what enemy armies used to do is they would take a little bit of linen, they would wrap it right behind the arrowhead, they would dip that in either some kind of oil or like a hot tar, like a pitch, and then they would light it on fire and shoot across. And with all of that material to consume and burn, the flames would not go out. Now, what's the problem about having a brass shield, you would think? So what? The arrows are going to def- deflect off. Who cares? No, arrows don't deflect off. A well-shot arrow will penetrate or will stick to the outside of a bronze shield. Now, here's your big epic problem with that. Bronze is a great conductor of heat. And so if you take a couple hot arrows and you're not diligent enough to pull them off and not try to, you know, get killed in the whole thing there, that could be a problem. But I told you before that the Roman shield was made out of wood, but it was covered with linen and cowhide. And they used to soak their shields in water before they would go onto the battlefield. And so you see, that was really something very useful. You see, catching a flaming arrow with a nice, damp shield would stop the grass from catching on fire around you. It would stop your clothes from catching on fire 
while on you. You see, you were there to keep safe. Not only that, to keep safe someone who was with you. And so there's a huge analogy in this that the flaming darts is that Satan doesn't just shoot darts to wound us or to puncture us, but what does he shoot? Just like other real, tangible, living armies, Satan, our adversary, shoots flaming darts that can burn, sear, and scar us ever so deeply. You see, not thinking that he's real is the biggest mistake most people make. And I would say the greatest trick of the master trickster is lulling people into a false sense of security that they've got it all figured out, life is long, you're going to live until you're a good old 80 or 90, and then they'll put you on some kind of blood thinner, and you might make it to 100 because Western medicine is solving everything. And it's a false sense of security. And the greatest trick Satan has pulled off is convincing the world that he does not exist. Probably one of his greatest tricks. And trust me, he's got a bag full of them, guys. And here is the problem, okay? And it's a real problem. Too many pastors underemphasize this. 1 Peter 5 is real clear. It says that beware. Remember, it's, it's sober. It's, it's, it's vigilant. For Satan, our adversary, walks around as a prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, then guess what? That can't be a big old hypothetical. He's out to devour and destroy people. Okay? And it's not like he's like some goofy, 40-year-old, toothless, caged-up lion. Because if that was the truth, that's what Peter would have said. He said, beware. He's a prowling lion. You ever watch Nat Geo? You ever watch the Serengeti plane where the poor gazelles are out at the water hole and they're just doing their gazelle things and flipping their cute little gazelle tails and they're drinking water and making cute noise? And that lioness, what is she doing? She's creeping in the high grass. Shh. She's stealthy. She's quiet. And then, bam, she gets them. Because that's what lions do. They pounce. Being a big lover of cats and having many throughout my life, the biggest problem with having an outdoor cat is that they love to torture their food before they eat it, and then they always love to bring you something. I had a cat named Vulture. Later, I'll explain that name to you if you didn't get that. Vulture liked to bring in Headless things, headless mice, headless squirrels, headless shrews, headless moles. He could even catch birds sometimes. It was an offering of love. But one day I, it was so sick. But, but one, one day I watched Vulture prowl and all the inner lion that was in her. Female cat, watch out. All right? This Vulture was prowling. And this poor, stupid morning dove is like taking a bath in a garage, you know, it's in a driveway and there's a little puddle and he's like, <laughs> and he's having a great time and Vulture pounds and just pulls it apart and Feathers just went, <laughs> it was awful. It was the worst thing ever. And I watched as the cat just pawed that thing to death and I thought to myself, dear Jesus in heaven, I will be a missionary anywhere in the world, even if there are lions there, if you promise me one won't kill me. You see, because that is not a quick way to go if you haven't figured that out yet. It's long and slow. It's kind of tedious. And you know, the Old Testament speaks that Satan is the master of subtlety, and that's what he does. And he's out there, guys. 
And the only way to overcome all of these things that assault us is to seek to live out the Christian life, making sure that we have the shield of faith and that it is readily with us and we're using it. It protects us from all, from all of our enemies. And for all those who trust in the living hope that is in Jesus. Our faith is in Jesus. And it's awesome that Paul likens the shield of a Roman soldier and he links it with faith. Because faith can protect us. Faith is not something we hide behind. Faith is something we cling to radically. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians always want to muster up their faith. And they get these things out of order, and they start talking about all of the great faith we can have. And I think that's wrong, because I think it's the object of our faith. It's not me mustering up great faith in Jesus. I grew up Pentecostal, if you haven't figured that out yet. All right? And I always always think that. I mean, by the time I was nine years old, I thought, this is the prayer. This is how you do it. You have to ramp up your prayer kind of the way you crank a generator over right? Just get that sucker humming, and then maybe things will work, you know? I, I, at one point, I started thinking maybe Jesus was very hard of hearing, because my pastor always shouted more when he wanted more from Jesus. And then one day, it dawned on me, it's, it's as clear as crystal to hear the Lord speak to your heart and say, it's not about exercising great faith, Jay. It's about the fact that you've got faith in me, and I'm a great God. It's not about your exercise of great faith. It's the God we have, how great he is. Okay, it's him. It is the object of our faith. You see, Satan likes to throw all kinds of things our way. I said he had a big bag of tricks before, and that's the God's honest truth. And this is what we forget sometimes. And I think this is why he's a prowling lion. It doesn't matter how smart you are. I will tell you one thing you will never have over our adversary. You do not have 6,000 years of human history as your experience. He does. He knows all the weak spots. He knows everywhere your armor doesn't match up perfectly. He knows when you leave it at home, and he knows if you're not going to use a shield He can hit you, and he will hit you hard. One of the most formidable weapons of Satan is the weapon of accusation. He will come, he will accuse you, he will tell you you're not good enough, he will tell you you're lousy, he will tell you you're unloved, you are unworthy, and you are not a good Christian. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us that is exactly the weapons of his warfare. I want us to look at the book of Zechariah. It's a minor prophet. It's one of the longer ones. There's 12 chapters, so you'll find it with me. Because Joshua was the high priest, and he was accused by Satan, who went to God and said, look at your high priest. Look at him. Look at him. He's wearing filthy garments. He's not fit for service. He's not even fit for your kingdom. And you're looking for Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah 3. And we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says, And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, 
standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and he spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away his filthy garments from him and bring to him, he said, see that I have removed the iniquities from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, what we have here is what I like to call a cleaned-up English translation. Because although it might say here that he had filthy garments, literally the Hebrew word there is excrement. He had poop on his garments. All right? You ever been walking down the road and everything's going great and then you step in a big pile of dog? Ew. Some inconsiderate, non-pooper, scooping owner just let their dog do his morning business, and everything's great, and then you step in it, and then you drag it in house, and your mom tries to kill you because you drag it in the house, and then you get out, and then you drag it in someone, you drag it in your friend's car, and it's just, it's just a drag, okay? And it's gross, and it smells. Now, as gross as it is, follow, follow it. It's an application point. Follow me for two seconds. Get the grossness of this all because it's super important. As gross as it is to have poop on your shoe, how gross is it to have poop on your sweater? So much, so much closer to your nose. So much closer to your nose. And that's basically what Satan's saying here. He's saying, this guy's not worthy. He's dirty. He's filthy. He's got animal excrement on him. He's nothing. He's nothing. And you see, that's our adversary. That's Satan. He accuses us of our sins, of our unworthiness, that we should not even be in the kingdom of God. He does this not to lead believers towards repentance, but to lead them even more into dark despair so that Christians will become paralyzed and not able to function effectively in this world. And so then the big question most people have at this point is then, how do I know the difference between the voice of Satan and the voice of God? You see, this is the difference. Satan comes to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. And the chastisement of our God is the voice of our Father. You see, Jesus would never say that to you. Jesus would never say you're a loser. Jesus would never say you're unworthy of my love. Jesus would never say, I wish I never chose you. I wish you never believed. I wish you had never entered into my kingdom. I wish you weren't in my family. Jesus would never say that. That's what your enemy says. That's what Satan says. You see, he only condemns. Jesus corrects us and he rebukes us in love and gentleness. I don't know about you, but I feel the leading and the guiding and the gentle rebuke of the Holy Spirit, something like this. Uh, uh, oh, what are you doing? Before it even goes down, right? Before it's like, oh, oh, oh. just right there, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. 
I remember when the Lord was calling me into ministry in my early 20s, and I spit a piece of gum out the window one day on the turnpike. Got two and a quarter miles down the road, and literally the conviction of the Holy Spirit was so heavy, I paid a dollar to turn around and went and looked for the gum on the side of the turnpike. Because I could not live with the guilt anymore. And I know I'm weird, but I'm not crazy. Right? I'm just driving there, and the Lord's like, did you just spit gum out the window, son? I'm like, yeah, but Lord, it'll get all hard. It'll turn into a rock. It'll turn into a rock. It'll be fine. It's gum. And it was like, oh, I got all these like, paranoia moments. Right? He's like, what if a squirrel picks up that gum and chokes on it? Like, oh, my Lord, what if, it's, oh my, what, if a, what if a bird gets it caught in its little wing and it can't fly anymore? And the Lord's like, you've got this huge bumper sticker on the back of your car, large as life, that says, Jesus saves, and you're spitting stuff out the window? Really? Come on now, son. I got a come on moment from the Lord. Come on, man paid that dollar, turn around, like, it was bright orange, it was like hubba bubba orange, it was easy to find, I picked it up, a year later, I did the same thing with a coffee cup, that was, I got a quarter mile up the road for the coffee cup, that was like a real dirty bird moment for me, but it's like the Lord had me on a short leash, and I'm all good with that, like, that's good, but you see, the writer of the Hebrews says, we have all had fathers, and they disciplined us, and we did not despise them. You see, God's discipline is very unlike the world's discipline. The world's discipline is punitive, which has a lot to do with punishment. Going to get you, you're going to pay for it, you're going down, here's the trial, here's the sentence, bam, you're in big trouble. You see, God's discipline is restorative. See, as believers, when we confess our faith in Christ and get saved, when we place our faith in the living hope that is in Messiah Jesus, you are saved, and all of your sin is forgiven, and if it isn't, you've got a big problem. If all of your sin is not forgiven the moment you believe, if you're not fully justified, then you're really not saved, because it means that any time if you ever sinned and then died, you'd go to hell for that. You see, we don't need to confess our sins when we sin to get saved again. We're saved. God forgave us. The problem is, is when we sin, we break fellowship with God, and when we confess, it restores the fellowship. A lot of Protestant Christianity has got to get that right today because they're off. It's, some really, it's bad theology, and bad theology leads to bad practice. People start getting all condemned, and they think that God doesn't love them anymore, and they're not saved anymore. That is a tactic of Satan, guys. That's what Satan does. He comes in and says, God doesn't love you anymore. Oh, my goodness, you call yourself a Christian. Oh. What a loser. See, God by his very nature, tells us that he is our Abba, that is the most intimate and tender, kind-hearted Aramaic word, daddy, is close in English. It's not close enough, though. It's not intimate enough. You see, he's our Abba. And Jesus said we can cry, Abba, Father. Satan comes to push us down and push us around and tell us that we're not worthy and that we're unloved. But the Lord's correction is, I love you. Don't do this. Don't consciously break fellowship between you and I. Come back. Come back to me. It's not punitive. It's restorative. 
Look, brothers and sisters, the only answer to these attacks of the enemy that we have is grace and faith, just like Joshua the high priest. Our our integrity is that we're justified by faith and not by works. What did Joshua the high priest have to do? Not a thing, because the angel of the Lord took care of it. I got new garments for him. Give give him these garments. Put Put a clean turban on his head. I'm by you. I'll stand by you. Look what I've done for you. It's our saving faith in Jesus. That is the shield that protects us from the accusations of the enemy. Now, remember again, it's not about mustering up great faith. It's about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's about the object. It's the fact that he is a great and mighty God and that Jesus went to the cross And when he could have called down a legion of angels, he didn't. First, in obedience to his father's plan. Secondly, for the love of the world. First, in obedience to his father. And secondly, for the love of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You want to know what kept Jesus on the cross? Obedience and love. When you couple those two things together, it is amazing. It is amazing faith. You see, this great shield of faith not only protects us, but it is useful to take on the offensive. If you've never thought of that, you can use a shield. You drop your sword, you've still got something to push back with. You've got something to thrust with. You can use a shield. I tell you, the Roman shield, as I said before, had hooks on one side and rings on the other, okay? So it had a hook on one side and it had rings on the other, all the way down the shield. Thus, in battle, what the Romans did is they would line up together and they could interlock their shields. And when I say they could interlock their shields, hook and loop, they could interlock their shields to become one working perfect machine. It was called the Roman phalanx, Okay? It was nearly impenetrable. And when they used it as an offensive, because they had trained and they knew how to do it, they would link their shields together, they would form into a V-shape, and they would ram right into enemy lines. They would ram right into enemy barriers, walls, whatever be it. Because the shield of faith is not just a defensive weapon. It's also an offensive And I truly believe with all of my heart that this is what Paul was suggesting when he used this analogy. He expected his readers to get that. I'm not talking about a Greek shield or a Persian shield or an Egyptian shield. You know where my imprisonment is. You know I'm in Rome. You know I'm chained to Roman soldiers. He said this clearly in his epistles. And so he knew people would get it. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ does not want us to stand alone. That's clearly Western thinking, individualistic thinking. Oh, you're good, you're strong, you got it on your own. That's okay. In New Brunswick, I used to have a saying. When I pastored Calvary Chapel in New Brunswick, I used to tell people, you want to go be a Lone Ranger Christian, you're all good, but I tell you, you'll be the first cowboy picked off the prairie. And I'll either be hearing about how beat up and hurt you are, or you'll come crawling back in bleeding and wounded. And I hate both those scenarios. Because God has made us for each other. God has called us to be our brother and our sister's keeper. 
stand together in our like and common faith, link up with other people. Individually, we are weak. Together, we are strong. Individually, we are much more likely to be devoured by a prowling, roaring lion. Together, we might be able to fight him off and back him into a corner. I want to close with this passage, Ecclesiastes 4.9, because I think it makes a strong point for us here. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You see, it's King Solomon who tells us that there is strength in numbers. Two people can get twice the work done. They make twice the profit. One person lying down in the field could be shivering as soon as the sun goes down, but two people lying together will exchange body heat and keep one another warm. One person attacked by someone who is perhaps bigger and stronger or more experienced in a fight is usually overthrown and beaten down, but two people together can withstand a single attacker. And if you've ever seen any piece of rope on your life that's not cheesy rope, it's intertwined, three different strands, braided. The same way that you girls will braid your hair, you would not believe how strong your hair is when you do that. See, it's the principle of strength in numbers. We are greater together than we are apart. And that is the design of our Heavenly Father. And so to reiterate to you, young men and women, you are your brother's keeper. Do not hang up your shield of faith. Forever keep it on your arm. Let's pray.